go ahead and take a seat. Man, good morning. Good to have you all here today. Uh, I say it every week, but I mean it. Thank you so much for being here. Um, man, thank you for wanting to own your faith. Thank you for wanting to take next steps in your own faith. If you're here for the first time, man, thanks for showing up and, and seeing what God might desire to say to you and do in in your heart. Uh, if you were here last week, this will be a little recap, but we just started, beginning of the year, a slow study of the Gospel of Mark. Four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we are going to go slowly through the Gospel of Mark. So that means between uh, now and Easter, we are going to go about a chapter or so a week uh, so that we can not just get a really high level view of it, but that we have time to like sit in it. We miss things when we go a little too fast. So next three months, we're going to go just slowly through the gospel of Mark. Now, I don't have the luxury of going slow on Sunday mornings because uh, you would like to go to lunch and you have other things you have to do. So we're going to go a little quicker on Sundays so that you can then go a little slower throughout the week. So two ways that I'm hoping and, and giving some, some ways for our church to move a little slower throughout the Gospel of Mark. Here's the first one. Go ahead and grab your phones if you did not do this last week, uh, but you can jump into our Bible reading plan. You'll get one text a week, Monday, mid-morning or so, if you text Bible to that number, 706-903-9099. And that will opt you into a text where you'll get it on Mondays, and it will give you, our reading plan will give you one, maybe two chapters to read. That's it. One text on Monday, here's what I'm supposed to read, but here's the posture I want us to have. It's not a posture of, oh good, I read my chapter on Monday, I'm good, see you on Sunday. That's not the posture. The posture we wanna have is, I'm gonna read chapter three on Monday, and then I'm gonna read chapter three on Tuesday, and then I'm gonna read chapter three on Wednesday. And we're gonna just keep rereading, slowly going through the gospel of Mark because I believe that there's so much more that God wants to show us and wants to say to us. And if we just blow through it real quick, we're gonna miss a lot of things. So go through it slowly this week, this week reread those chapters. Tomorrow it is chapter three. Uh, so you can just reread that throughout the week. The second thing you can do to help you in your study, your personal study, is to get our going deeper questions. We email out every single Tuesday a Bible study guide based on what we talk about and read on Sundays. So you can get those emails. If you're not getting them, that QR code that's right there on that sticker on the back of your seat says, scan me, scan that QR code, then click subscribe to church emails, click the one that says Bible reading guide. And that will give you on Tuesdays uh, some questions to ask, but also a chance to go a little bit deeper into discussion. Those could be th just like thoughts and uh, ways for you to meditate on your own through the scriptures. You could do that at home with your spouse, with your kids, with your roommates. You can do that in a Bible study group. You get a bunch of people together, uh, however you want to do it. It allows you to go just a little bit deeper and allows you to sit a little bit longer in what we're talking about. So two great ways for us to slowly together slowly go through the gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter two today. If you've got a Bible, would love for you to see things in context. Because like I said, we're gonna go a little quicker today. So seeing the big picture of where we're at and what's happening, even reading through the verses that I'm not gonna read for you is gonna be very, very helpful today. So if you've got a Bible, be in chapter two. I'll pray and then we will jump in together. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how your word speaks to us and moves. Thank you that it is alive and active and it is your very breath. Holy Spirit, would you allow the distractions to move the back of our mind, push them to the back so we can be fixated and focused on you, Jesus. Help us to know who you are. Help us to know more about you. Teach us something new or remind us of things that we have forgotten and neglected. Speak, Lord, for we are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Uh, so before moving to Dawsonville almost a decade ago, uh, my wife and I, our family, we lived out in California, not originally from there, but lived there. And uh, I was a student pastor at a church outside of Sacramento. And student pastor for about seven or so years. And one of the great opportunities I had was on Tuesdays, I would go and be the campus monitor at the local high school. Our church was literally down the street from the local high school, and I knew some of the principals and assistant principals, so they invited me, come and be a campus monitor. It's kind of like an open campus concept being out in California, so I would just walk around and meet with students and talk with students, hang out with the students that were part of our youth ministry, get to know their friends. I would have lunch with them. It was a great opportunity to just meet students where they are. Now, as I did, it was a very, very large school, so as I did that every Tuesday, I can't say every single time, but most times, I would be approached by a teacher at that school, and that teacher would come up to me and begin to question me with a lot of concern, and the question was never, what are you doing here? I never got asked that question. The question was, why are you not in class? That's the question I would always get. So I would always get, I looked very young and I'm very thankful for that. And the more I've gotten older, I'm like, I'm glad that I was mistaken for a high school student when I was not a high school student. So I'm very thankful for that. Was not then, but I am now. And so I would go, I mean, I got asked this all the time. So I would go into like my little explanation. I had a spiel that I always gave. Yes, my name is Brian Haas. I'm the student pastor at this church down the street. Mr. Douglas, the assistant principal, he and I know each other and he's invited me to come and be a campus monitor. So da, 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 and I kind of go through that whole thing. And as I would give my explanation, you could just see confusion on these teachers' faces because they heard what I said. They heard me say, I am a student pastor at the church down the street, but they're looking at me and saying, that's not right. There's no way. There's no way you can be a student. You are way too young. You can't. There's no way you could be a student pastor. You have to be pulling one over on me. So they had the look of confusion and then concern. A lot of them would get on the radios and verify my story. And you could hear Mr. Douglas's voice. Yes, it's Brian. Does he look young? Is he short? Yes, he's supposed to be here. They eventually got me a little tag that said campus monitor. I'm not a student. And so that was very helpful. No. But that happens, right? We have preconceived ideas about people. We have preconceived ideas about Jesus. And what happens when our ideas and our descriptions and our expectations don't match up? It causes confusion, can even cause conflict and tension. Last week, if you were here, Mark, the gospel writer of Mark, John Mark, he tells us who Jesus is. Chapter one, verse one, this is about the good news of Jesus Christ the son of God, the Messiah. He tells us. What is fascinating in chapter two going into chapter three is we are gonna be told who Jesus is by Jesus. Jesus is gonna now begin to introduce who he is. So Mark, if you remember, Mark does not always write in chronological order. He writes in groups of moments. And as he writes about these moments, he's always writing with a, a reason or an intention in mind. He's wanting to highlight something very specific. So what we're gonna do this morning is we are gonna look at five moments. I promise we're gonna get through all five. You're gonna listen really fast and you're gonna do a great job. I believe in you. We're gonna look at these five moments that Mark gives us where Jesus is going to introduce himself. He is gonna explain and describe who he is. So look for how Jesus introduces himself, but also pay attention to the conflict that creates with the religious leaders called the Pharisees because they have preconceived ideas about what the Messiah would be like, what the Messiah should be like, and what Jesus begins to do and what Jesus begins to say about himself does not match up with what the Pharisees were expecting 
and looking for, and it's going to cause tension. Now, to help you with that, because there's going to be five of them, uh, you should have a note card at your seat, just a blank note card, and maybe that seat pocket, where like tithe envelopes are, and the pens are. If you're on the front row, they should be just sitting with all those pens. So grab you that blank note card, and here's what I need you to do. Very easy, just number one through five. One, two, three, four, five, however you want to put it on there. Only use one side. We're going to use the other side later. So just use one side of the note card. One, two, three, four, five. You just need enough space for a sentence after each number. So number one, leave a blank, then go down. You probably can't see mine, but I've got them numbered. One, two, three, four, five. Just down the note card. I'll tell you what to do with those, but what we're going to be looking for is these descriptions of Jesus by Jesus. There's going to be five of them because of these five moments. We're going to write them down. I'll tell you what to do with them. We'll put them on the screen so you don't have to guess. So stick with me as we go through the five. I'll tell you what those five are and what we're going to do with them. Sound good? Thumbs up. Got your note cards? All set. Excellent. So first part, like I said, it'd be great for you to follow along. You'll see a lot more than if you just look on the screens. We're going to start Mark chapter two. And like I said, I'm going to go a little quick through these. I'm going to highlight parts of these moments. As you study Mark two and three this week on your own, you're going to be able to slow down and dig in a little bit deeper. I'm not going to read every verse. You can do that on your own. Here's the scene that Mark sets up in chapter two, that Jesus's reputation is just going crazy. People are hearing about this teacher with authority. They're hearing about this healer that is casting out demons, that is healing people. It's incredible. So people are coming from all over just to see and hear who this Jesus is. And we're gonna pick up this scene in chapter two, verse three. Jesus is preaching, and it's crazy crowded. Verse three, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. It was so crowded. So look what they did. They dug a hole through the roof above his head, above Jesus' head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. I love this story. And if you've been around me enough, I probably preach this story once a year. It's made a huge impact on my life. There's a whole lot of application within this story about the faith of the friends, about the need this man had, all that Jesus would do. Like, it's an incredible story, a lot of application. We're gonna focus on the main thing about this moment and this story, which is verse five. Verse five, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child your sins are forgiven. He didn't start with a healing, did he? Which is what everybody was expecting. It's what the friends, those four friends, it's what they brought him there for. It's what this paralyzed man that had been brought through a hole in a roof now laying on the floor at the very feet of Jesus, it's what he was expecting. He was expecting to be able to walk. He was expecting a healing. And instead, Jesus says, my child or my son, your sins are forgiven. Not healed, but you are forgiven. Jesus is beginning to introduce who he is and why he came. He came to forgive sins, but that creates a problem. That creates a conflict, right? If, if I offend you, you can forgive me for what I did to you. If you offend me, I can offend you for what you did to me. Do you know what I cannot do? I cannot forgive you of all of your sins, I can just forgive you for what you did to me. I cannot forgive you of, of what you've done to everybody else. I most certainly cannot forgive you for what you've done against God. I can't forgive you except for the offense you have caused with me. And here Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. He shouldn't be able to say that because only God can do that. And that's what the religious leaders are starting to think about. They bring that up. Here's what happens next, verse six. 
But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, they didn't say it out loud, they started in their minds. They thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. And they are absolutely correct. Only God can forgive sins. So why is this man, Jesus, saying he is forgiving sins? I love that Jesus is gonna answer what they were thinking, not what they were saying. Verse eight, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or is it easier to say, stand up, pick up your mat and walk? Let's talk about that question. It's a great question. It's a brilliant question. Which one's easier? On the surface, it seems like it would be easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Like any of us could verbally, vocally like say that. Doesn't mean it actually happened, but we could say it, but there's no way to prove it. On the other hand, saying stand up, pick up your mat and walk to a paralyzed mound seems much harder because even though we could verbalize it and we could vocalize it and we could actually say it, we will find out very shortly if I had the authority and the power to actually do it. So which is harder? On the surface, it might look like stand up, get on your mat is harder because we're gonna be able to see it. But in reality, it is much harder to say your sins are forgiven because only God can do that. Jesus knows that they don't have a good answer for this. They don't say anything. So Jesus continues on in verse 10. So I will prove to you, this is Jesus's words. He said, so I will prove to you that the son of man, he's talking about himself. Son of man comes from the prophet Daniel. Daniel uses that language, that phrase to talk about the son of God or the Messiah. So anytime you hear Jesus talk about himself as the son of man, he's referring to himself as the son of God and the Messiah. So Jesus says, I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we have never seen anything like this before. Do you notice what Jesus was doing here? He was not healing just to heal someone. He was healing someone to prove the more important thing, that he in fact is God and can forgive sins. Jesus is healing. Jesus' miracles are there to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he has the authority and the power to forgive sins. So right here, Mark wants us to know out of the get-go, how is Jesus introducing himself? How is he describing himself? Here's how we'll say it, and this is where you'll write down on your number one. Here's your number one. Out of the five moments, here's the first moment. Here's how Jesus describes himself. Jesus is Lord and forgives all our sins. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He has the authority. He has the power and he does forgive all our sins. Not just the ones that are offensive between us and him, but all of our sins. Because we have all sinned against God. He forgives all our sins. Notice that Jesus did not come to be just a helper. Like this is an important distinction. These friends we read about, they brought this paralyzed man because they wanted Jesus to help they wanted Jesus to do something to help him. They really were not looking for this man, his sins to be forgiven. They were looking for a physical healing. They were looking for Jesus to help. But Jesus makes it very clear. I did not come just to be a helpful person. I did not come just to offer a helping hand. I'm not here just to help you. I'm here. My sole purpose is to forgive you of your sins, to save your soul. Here's why that's an important distinction. And we see this in our culture today. 
Some people are so desperate for help, they do. They go to Jesus because they want help. Anytime there is a national crisis or a tragedy, what happens to our churches? They start to fill up because people want help. And so we go to Jesus for help, but you know what happens? Jesus doesn't help us the way we want helped. And so then people are like, oh, I'm not signing up for this. He's not doing what I want him to do. This man shows up and he wants to be healed. He's paralyzed, wants to be able to walk and Jesus forgives him of his, of his sins. He's like, that's not why I'm here. Jesus says, but that's why I'm here. So when we want help, if Jesus is just a helper, we show up and we want him to help us the way that we want him to help us. And if he doesn't help us the way that we want him to help us, we're done. The other thing that we see is if Jesus is just a helper, well, what if I don't need help? Like we live in a culture, I see this a lot. I'm fine. I mean, sure, life could be better, but at the end of the day, like I'm good. I don't need someone to step in and help. So I'm good. If Jesus is just a helper, we either go to him with false expectations or we don't go to him at all because we think we're fine. And Jesus is being clear as he introduces himself. He's like, I am Lord and I came to forgive sins, not just to help. That's moment number one. Moment number two, Jesus, we see this a lot uh, early on in the gospels where Jesus points to specific individuals and says, follow me. He did this with Peter, James, John, Andrew, and many others. He walked by and said, you, come and follow me. And they left everything and they followed him. We see an account of Matthew or his other name would have been Levi. Levi, Matthew, same person, different names. If you want to know why, find me afterwards, I'll explain. Uh, But same person, Levi and Matthew, same person. So here Jesus comes up to Matthew, a tax collector, hated by the Jews, hated by the Romans, was considered like the worst of the worst. In fact, throughout uh, ancient writings, they are known as scum. Nobody liked the tax collectors. And here Jesus comes up to Matthew and says, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew couldn't believe it. He was thrilled. He left his tax collector booth. He left all the money. He left all of his stuff and he followed Jesus. And then Matthew does what we do when we get excited. We throw a party and we celebrate. So Matthew was so thrilled to be following Jesus that he invited Jesus and Jesus' disciples and a bunch of his other friends, which mean a lot of other tax collectors and sinners, invited him over to celebrate that Jesus had invited him. The problem though is the religious leaders weren't so thrilled. Here's where we're gonna pick up Matthew's story with Jesus. Verse 16, but when the teachers of religious law who were Pharisees saw Jesus eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, they did not ask Jesus, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such, there's the word, scum? See, they had preconceived ideas about the Messiah. They had preconceived ideas about Jesus and they could not in their minds understand how a rabbi, how a religious leader and teacher could eat and sit at the same table as somebody like Matthew, as somebody as a tax collector, one of these other sinners. How could he possibly, he knows who they are, right? How could he possibly sit at the same table? In their minds, there's no way that the son of God, the Messiah, would ever, ever do what Jesus was doing. Here's Jesus' response. Verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I love Jesus' response. It's, it's like a backhanded compliment here. 
Like imagine this scene. Here's Jesus, his disciples, and then Matthew and all these other sinners and tax collectors. And they're just like, I can't believe Jesus is actually here. They think this is awesome. The Pharisees show up to the party, arms crossed. And they start looking around. They can't believe it. They go to the disciples like, can you believe that Jesus is sitting at the same table with them? He's eating with them. Can you believe that? Why would he ever do that? Jesus, hearing this, steps forward, all eyes on him. And Jesus says, yeah, that's right. I'm with them. I'm part of them. I'm going to sit and eat with them. And you imagine back behind Jesus, all the sinners and tax soldiers like, yeah, that's right, you Pharisees. Jesus likes us. Jesus loves us. Jesus is with us. But they don't let Jesus finish the sentence. Because the very next thing Jesus says is, because they're sick and they need a doctor. It's like all the tax collectors are like, yeah, what? What did he just call us? Did he say we're sick? Yes, he did. Sometimes we focus on Jesus' love and Jesus' grace and Jesus' mercy. And he is all of those. We should sit in wonder and awe of the unconditional love and the never-ending grace of Jesus. We should be in awe of that. But don't miss why he came. Because we are sick in need of a doctor. We have a problem called sin. We have a sickness called sin and there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do to fix it. There's not enough good deeds. There's not enough good words. There's not enough good works for us to take care of our sickness called sin. So Jesus steps in and says, I love you, but I refuse to leave you the way you are. Matthew chapter one, we get Mark explaining to us why Jesus came. Jesus' words, he said, the kingdom of God is here. I've come to preach the good news. Repent of your sins. Jesus is saying, this is who I am. I am Lord, but it's why I came. I came to call you to repentance. Here's your second moment. How does Jesus describe himself? How does Jesus introduce himself? Jesus is Lord and calls us to repentance. Jesus is Lord He came to save us, but he came to save us because we need saving. Now, I'll tell you, this last week, I went back and forth on the word repentance. Uh, My production team knows this when they were doing notes for me. I mean, I kept going back and forth on different words. Uh, Repentance is the correct word biblically, but the problem is that's a word that culturally has a lot of baggage. Like when I say the word repent or repentance, chances are good you have a very interesting picture in your mind. Chances are it's somebody with a sign marching around saying things. That's probably what you're thinking of. Now, I, I, I want to help like reclaim that word because originally I was like, man, let's do a different word that has a lot of baggage. But no, it's a good word. It's a great word. Jesus uses that word. So I want us to reclaim the word repent and repentance because it is a very good and healthy word. So to help with that, I'm going to show you what repent literally looks like. This is the new image for repentance. Okay, pay attention. You're going to miss it if you're not careful. You ready? This is what repent and repentance looks like. You ready? That's Repentance. Did you miss it? Let's do it one more time. Some of you blinked and didn't see what it was. Here we go. If somebody says repent, this is what it means. That's it. Repent or repentance literally means to turn around, to change your direction. And Jesus says, I've come so that you can change your direction and move in my direction. When he says, follow me, he's saying, change your direction, repent, turn around and follow me. So he sits at the same table with people like Matthew and other tax collectors and other sinners. 
Not because he agrees with the direction they are going, but because he wants to lead them to a new direction. That's called repentance. Notice some of the words that we might say are missing in this section. Words we do not see in this, in this moment. We do not see the word love. We do not see the word mercy. We do not see the word grace. We do not see the word acceptance. There's a lot of words that we associate with Jesus, which are all true, but we do not see them in this moment. Jesus says, they're sick in need of a doctor. I have come to help them, not those that think they're all good. Does that make sense? That's what Jesus means when he says, I've come to call us to repentance. Jesus is Lord. He has the authority, which is what we talked about last week. And because of his authority, he has the right to call us to change directions, to move in a new direction in following him. That is why he came, to call us to repentance. He loves us most certainly. His grace never ends, but he still calls us to a new way of living. All right, that's moment number two. Moment number three. We're gonna go a little quicker through this one. Moment number three, other people, not just religious leaders, start noticing that Jesus and his disciples don't do what other religious leaders and their disciples do. In this, in this case, they're not fasting. They are going without. They are not eating. And that was a very big deal. It is still a big deal. And by no means is Jesus saying fasting is wrong, but he is gonna talk about the timing of fasting and why his disciples were not fasting. So his disciples were not fasting. Everybody else was. So they wanted to know, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus' response, again, is very telling as he uses it away as a way to introduce and describe himself. Verse 19, this is why Jesus' disciples were not fasting like everybody else. Verse 19, Jesus replied, do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. This is a good example. There's actually two more metaphors and illustrations that come right after this passage we don't have time to get into. In your study this week, do not gloss over them. They are super important in what Jesus is getting at here. So just kind of word to the wise on that one. So what's Jesus calling himself? What did he say? He said, I am the what? Starts with a G. I'm the groom. Now that's a very, very big statement, especially around other religious Jews, because in the Old Testament, if you go back in the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures, God would use this metaphor where he's the groom and his people Israel would be the, what do you think? That's right, the bride. So for Jesus to say, the groom is here, he's saying, God Almighty is here and I'm him. That metaphor continues into the New Testament where authors of the New Testament say that Jesus is the groom and we as the church are the, the bride. We are known as the bride of Christ. So for Jesus to say, I'm the groom, and if the groom is with you, we don't fast, we celebrate. If you've ever been to a wedding, there's not a lot of fasting that happens at a wedding. It's a whole lot of feasting. It's a party. Why? Because we are celebrating this relationship. We are celebrating this new life that is being joined together. We celebrate that wedding. We celebrate the relationship and the commitments, but we also recognize that life is changing. Right? These are not two individuals living for themselves anymore. These are two individuals that have died to themselves to serve the other. Surrender and submit is part of that celebration. So Jesus is saying, I'm the groom and I'm here. And while I'm here, you celebrate my presence because new life is coming. There will be a time for you to fast, but not right now. 
because I am here. The one you've been waiting for, the one you've been praying for is here. Here's your third moment. Here's how Jesus introduces himself if you wanna write this one down. Jesus is Lord and gives us new life. We celebrate that new life. We are excited about that new life. We lean into that new life. And it's a new life that's based around our commitment to him and his commitment to us. It is a covenant relationship, similar to that of a marriage. Now, the religious leaders would have had a big problem with this. No, 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 you have no right to call yourself the groom. That's only to be used in reference to God. And Jesus seems like he nods and smiles and says, you're right. I'm here, let's celebrate. Jesus is Lord and gives us new life. Here's the fourth moment where Jesus describes and introduces himself. We're gonna read through more of this one so you understand the context. Verse 23, one Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grains to eat. This was very common. People traveled a lot, they walked a lot, so if they were traveling through grain fields, uh, it was not illegal, it was, in fact, it was expected, it was normal for people to then just take off some of the grain heads while they were walking. It's not like grab a picnic basket and a chair and sit down and feast. It's as you're walking, picking off some of the grain heads and eating them on your way uh, so you can stay, uh, so you're not so hungry. It's like a traveling snack, if you will. So as they're traveling, that was very normal. But here's the issue, though. It was happening on a Sabbath day, and that's where the Pharisees take issue. Verse 24, but the Pharisees said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? A couple things to point out. One, notice the escalation that Mark highlights in regards to Jesus and the religious leaders. Early on, it started with them thinking these things in their minds. Remember when Jesus healed the paralyzed man, they were just, or he forgave their sins, they were thinking it. Then they went to the disciples and said, why is he eating with these people? This is one of the first confrontations that they have with Jesus. Now they go directly to Jesus and accuse Jesus of allowing his disciples to break the law. How could you allow this? Why would you allow this? And Jesus is gonna give three examples to answer their question. The first one you can read on your own, uh, but I'll just give you a little spoiler alert on how he starts it. Verse 25, Jesus said to them, haven't you ever read in the scriptures, dot, dot, dot. Understand who Jesus is talking to. Jesus is talking to Pharisees, religious leaders, and expert in the law. These are experts. So Jesus a little sarcastically says, oh, you wanna know why? Have you even read this? Like that would have been offensive to the experts in the law. For Jesus to say, I don't know if you've actually read this or not. Let me help you understand. And then he goes through, and you can read it on your own. He gives an example of David, King David, very well-known story for the religious leaders about how he was in a similar situation, but it wasn't considered going against the law. In other words, Jesus uses that historical and biblical example to say, you're missing the point of the law. You've missed it. Then he goes on, and we are gonna read these next two statements from Jesus. Verse 27, here's his second explanation. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people and not people to meet the needs or the requirements of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have completely misunderstood and misinterpreted what you say you are experts in. You think you're an expert in the law, and I'm here to tell you, you have totally misunderstood and misinterpreted. And in fact, because of that, now you're leading people astray. Jesus says, the whole point of the Sabbath was to be helpful for humanity, not to make one more rule humanity was required to follow. And he looks at these experts and says, you have totally missed it. 
He doesn't give him a chance to respond because he leans in just a little bit more. Verse 28, so the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And that's when he like drops the mic and walks off. (laughs) The son of man, the son of God, the Messiah, the savior, me is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now let's walk through this uh, logically for a second. Who created the Sabbath? Go back to Genesis with me. Who created the Sabbath? God created the Sabbath. So who is Lord over the Sabbath? Who has the authority over the Sabbath? God. Do you understand what Jesus is making extremely clear to these religious leaders? I created it. I'm Lord over it. I think I know what I meant when I created it. You've missed it and you've missed it by a long shot. That's what Jesus is saying. It might not be as clear for us. Like obviously we're you know, Christians in the year 2024. We need a little explanation about this. For religious leaders who were experts in the law, they needed no explanation. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. So number four, here's our fourth moment. How does Jesus introduce himself? How does he describe himself? Jesus is Lord and Lord of all because he created all. And all is under his authority. We looked at that last week where Jesus is the ultimate authority. His words have authority. He has authority over the spiritual world and the unseen world. He has authority over the physical world and all of creation. Jesus is Lord and Lord of all. Last moment, last moment, fifth moment. This technically gets into chapter three. So we're in chapter three, verse one. And I wanna go a little slower through this one. So we're gonna read a little bit. Let me talk about it. I want us to go a little slower and here's why. Uh, This is not just another miracle of Jesus. I believe, I could be off on this one. I interpret this last moment very strategic for the gospel writer, Mark, John Mark. And I think what Mark was highlighting is not just the authority of Jesus, not just the lordship of Jesus, but I also think Mark wanted us to recognize what Jesus does for us today, all of humanity. So let me read it and I'll kind of explain Mark chapter three, verse one, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. This is the first time so far we have seen that word, enemies. We've not seen that word before. These are no longer religious leaders. These are no longer just Pharisees. These are officially enemies of Jesus. They're enemies because these religious leaders had a a preconceived idea. They had a box of what the Messiah, what the Son of God, what the Savior should fit in, what he should look like and how he should talk and how he should teach and what he should teach and what he should do and what he should not do and why he came. They had it in their box. And then when Jesus is introducing himself and saying, I am Lord and I'm here to forgive sins. I'm Lord and I'm calling sinners to repentance. I am Lord and guess what? I am Lord over everything. And we're celebrating because the groom is here. None of that fit in their box. So now they either have to accept or they have to walk away. And they've chosen to walk away and they are now enemies of Jesus. So now you have this scene where these enemies of Jesus are waiting and watching, waiting for Jesus to do something they could accuse him of. You know what scene comes to mind? This is what this looks like. Have you seen the movie Finding Nemo? I know, hard turn, it'll connect, I promise. (laughs) Finding Nemo. It's a scene towards the beginning of the movie 
where Nemo, the little fish, he's out in the open water because there's a boat out there. You remember the scene? And he gets all the way out there and he got further than any of his other fish friends. He gets all the way out to where the boat is and his dad's all the way on like the shore and he looks over at his son Nemo. He says, Nemo, don't you dare. You get back here right now. If you lift one fin, if you touch that boat, you're gonna be in so much trouble. And then Nemo's way on this side. Remember what he does? He takes that little fin and touches the boat <laughs> while he stares at his dad. I mean, he just stares his dad down, just <laughs> fin on the bottom of the boat. And then all of his little fish fins, if you remember this part, he's like, oh, Nemo touched the butt. <laughs> Such a good movie. Go back and watch Nemo. Some of you need to like read, study, John, study Mark, study John Mark, and then Jesus, and then like, then go back and like watch Nemo. And then he comes back and his dad was just furious. That's how I picture this scene with Jesus. I picture Jesus right here looking at this man with a deformed hand and then the rest of the Pharisees like, don't you do it. Don't you raise that hand. Don't you even think about it, Jesus. And then Jesus is over here like, mm, watch this. And he's gonna heal this man's hand. Now the difference between Nemo and Jesus, there's a lot. <laughs> the big difference, the big difference Nemo does this out of disobedience. Jesus does this out of defiance. He defies the religious leaders. He is not being disobedient. He was sinless and perfect. But he was defying the ritualistic legalism, misguided misinterpretation of the religious leaders. And he defied against them. Here's what Jesus does next. Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the deformed ham, come and stand in front of everyone. This is no longer secret. This is not public. He wants everyone to see it. He wants there to be no question about who he is. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they would not answer him. They would not answer him because there's not an answer that they could have given that did not make them look bad. Any answer they would have given would have caused them, would have forced them to believe in Jesus that was outside of their box. And they couldn't do that. They would not do that. And because he wouldn't fit in their box, they had to walk away. They had to be enemies. Verse five, he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Their preconceived ideas about Jesus were more important to them than the real Jesus, and it broke their Savior's heart. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was, and this is such an important word, what is it? And it was restored, not healed. The author, Mark, made it very clear that this is not about a healing. This is about restoration. This is not about a man's hand. This is about humanity's soul. And I love the picture here of Jesus asking this man to stand up. And the only requirement for this man's hand, deformed hand, to be restored, he didn't have to do anything. He didn't have to say anything specific. He didn't have to jump through hoops. He didn't have to change his life. All he had to do was hold out his hand. What a beautiful picture for us. Sin deforms and disfigures what God created. This man had a deformed hand and Jesus wanted to restore it. And all this man had to do was hold out his hand. 
It's the same invitation he gives us today. Believe in me, trust in me. When we hold out our hand, it is a symbol of trust and putting faith in another. Jesus says, hold out your hand, put trust in me, put your faith in me. And immediately it was restored. How's Jesus introducing himself in the fifth moment? Jesus is Lord and restores us. He is Lord and he restores us. That's what Jesus does. That's why he came. He is Lord, didn't come to heal us. He came to restore us, to restore our relationship with him. If you read in verse six, you know what the Pharisees did next? Verse six, let me read it and then we'll move on. Verse six, at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. This was the last straw. He's, he's threatening us. He's threatening our teachings. He's threatening our traditions. He has to die. Let me point out two things about Jesus's need to die. For the Pharisees, Jesus needed to die because of what I just mentioned. He was a threat to them and their teaching and their traditions. So he had to die. For us, we needed Jesus to die so he could restore us. Jesus came not to heal, but to fully restore. And to fully restore us meant he would go to the cross willingly, knowingly, to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to forgive us. But the story doesn't end there, does it? Three days later, he rises from the dead, proving that he is both Lord over sin and death, conquering both sin and death, and has the authority to give us life. Not because we earn it, not because we deserve it, but because when he said, hold out your hand, he said, that's the only thing I can do. I can't fix this on my own. I can't do anything else to change. All I can do is hold my hand up in faith and in trust and let my Lord restore. So you've got your note card, you've got all five written down. No, Jesus is Lord and restores us. So number one, Jesus is Lord and forgives our sins. Jesus is Lord and calls us to repentance to turn around. Jesus is Lord and gives us new life. We celebrate that new life that he gives us. We are a new creation, new relationship. Jesus is Lord and Lord of all. He's over the Sabbath and over everything because he is the creator of all things. And lastly, we see that Jesus is Lord and he restores us. So that's who Jesus is. According to his word, not the Jesus we fabricate, but that's who Jesus says he is. I'm Lord and, here's what he does. Here's what I want you to do on the backside. The backside should be blank. What are you gonna do with who Jesus is now? What do you do with that? Is he your Lord? Are you following him in a new direction? Are you celebrating the new life that he has given you? Is he truly Lord over all or just Lord over a few pieces of your life? Has he restored you? Have you raised your hand and put your faith and trust in him? I'm not saying you write anything on there right now, but maybe this week, as you're slowly studying chapters two, chapters three, studying through the gospel of Mark, I want that question to just resound in your heart and mind. Because Jesus is Lord, what does that mean for me today? How do I respond? If Jesus truly is who he says he is, what does that mean for me? Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for how you introduce yourself. Thank you for not making us guess or wonder or question who you are, but you are very clear that you are Lord. 
And because you are Lord, you forgive us of our sins. You don't just fix things we want you to fix. We don't just come to you when we need something. We come to you because we are sinners in need of saving. The wages of sin is death, and you forgive us of that debt by taking our place. You call us to repentance by leaving our old ways and following you. You meet us where we are at, and you give us love and grace, but you refuse to leave us where you are, and you lead us in a new direction following you. We celebrate that new life. We celebrate the committed and covenant relationship we have with you because you love us. We recognize your authority that you are Lord of all. And we come to you with our trust and with our faith because that's all we can bring to you. And you restore our souls. Jesus, we recognize who you are. We declare who you are. May we respond based on who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.